Rohan Santi, and welcome to the Wharton Digital Health Podcast. It's a podcast where MBAs can connect with the alumni community about the latest trends, company initiatives, and jobs available in the payer provider, digital health, and investing spaces. I'm joined today by a co-host and one of the students taking over the podcast next year, Scott Lever. Scott, excited to have you on board. Would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. It's great to meet the community. I'm a first-year MBA student at Wharton. And before coming to school, I spent six years working in healthcare consulting at the Marwood Group. At Marwood, we worked with healthcare private equity firms to help them navigate the reimbursement, regulatory, and legislative catalysts impacting their investments in the industry. Now, today, we're lucky enough to have Michael Mang, who is president and CFO of Stellar Health. Mike is a 2012 Wharton grad who spent the last decade investing in healthcare companies at Apex Partners before launching Stellar Health last year. We'll let Mike walk us through what exactly Stellar Health's mission is. But at a high level, Stellar Health is a new startup working to bridge the incentive gap between insurers and providers using value-based care models by deploying a unique technology platform. Hey, Mike, how are you doing today? Hey, Rohan. Hey, Scott. Yes, that was a great summary of what we do uh, in healthcare. Great. Let's jump right into the conversation then. Can you give us a brief summary of your career path before and after Wharton and how you ended up with Stellar Health? Yeah, sure. I was, um, you know, I was one of those two plus two plus twos, which I think just meant uh, did banking for two years, then private equity as an associate for two years, uh, focused on healthcare, uh, and then two years of an MBA. Uh, and so it's kind of a fairly straightforward route. Um, and after uh, my MBA, I returned to my original private equity firm, Apex Partners, uh, as that was kind of the intention as they uh, sent me off to business school. Great. So I want, that's actually a great place for us to start. You know, given your background at Apex, how did that experience at a leading healthcare PE firm shape your interest with respect to getting into the space and launching Stellar Health? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I fell into healthcare because of, you know, being an investor in that space and my private equity firm uh, putting me as someone who focuses there. But throughout the last 10 years, I really spent a lot of time looking at various parts of health, uh, the healthcare industry, whether it's pharma, med tech, med device, uh, home health, hospice, lab companies, managed care, technology, uh, hospitals, et cetera. So you get to see quite a bit of the healthcare uh, industry. And what you see also though, is a lot of the problems uh, that are in the industry and that the industry faces. And so what we've been able to, what I think I'd say the last 10 years drove for me was it needs a lot of bright young minds to help solve all these problems, or it's going to become an even bigger problem of unsustainability. And uh, I think that really is what inspired me to kind of take the leap here and uh, try and make a drive a little bit of the change and impact in this space. Perfect. That, that's a great transition. So speaking about some of those problems that you mentioned that you saw throughout your investing career, what were some of the trends or issues that you felt led to the need for Stellar Health? Yeah, I think at a, a high level in big picture, I think everyone knows this, right? But um, healthcare costs are out of control. It will become one in every $5, one in every $4 of GDP. And it's in, in a not great way, right? It actually makes us as a country much less competitive because how much we spend on ineffective healthcare. I think that's actually very well known. I think the kind of nuance that I would dive into that I saw a lot of too is that healthcare tends to be an incumbent's game. A lot of the status quo, whether it's a large health insurer or large health system, 
they tend to want to keep the system going the way it is, right? And especially when you're taking in medical inflation of north of seven, eight percent, so you get innate seven, eight percent growth, it's a pretty good space to be in and you don't want things to change. Um, I think now we're running into budgetary pressures though, where we just simply cannot afford this and cannot sustain it, right? In many state budgets, for example, it's the state Medicaid side that's eating into the education budget where we're not even able to spend as much money on teachers and schools and programs in schools. So it, healthcare is a bigger problem than just saying, oh, my healthcare is not great. It, uh, it actually impacts a lot of the other aspects of our, our economy. Got it. So, you know, I think Stellar Health is uniquely positioned in that it saw the transition to value-based care and wanted to be a technology platform to aid our country's transition. Um, can you talk a little about what are some of the trends you saw as you sh kind of shifted to value-based care, especially coming out of Wharton in 2012, and then that, that's right when the ACA was starting to hit its stride. Um, and maybe starting to see some of that transition. How, how did you look across the landscape or even, even as you were at APAX before Stellar and start to see some of the issues with the value-based care movement and, and what you might want to tackle? Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting things I find is that value-based care in concept, right, is actually one of the few bipartisan supported ideas. If you tell someone conceptually, we need to do better with less, uh, I think that's just an obvious comment. And so today, even as divided as uh, our country can be, people get behind the idea of value-based care. I think the problem in terms of, you know, since ACA and then since even 2012, the implementation of that concept is much more challenging than just simply saying, do more with less, right? And, and I think that's where a lot of this has fallen over uh, is that when you take it to the execution phase for providers and payers to deliver on this, uh, it gets quite a bit more challenging. And how do you actually get people to change the way they've been doing things for the last 50, 100 years? Um, that is exactly you know, where we focus uh, and what we aim to solve. And that's when Ben and I came together and said, we should really tackle this uh, specific issue we kind of know the system and the concept of how to actually change that. Um, and so at the end of 2017, we both tendered our resignations. We worked off as non-compete. Uh, we recruited a world-class engineer and teamed up to uh, start Health, Stellar Health at the beginning of 2018. So um, what I'm most proud of is that uh, I didn't come up with this idea uniquely, right? And that this idea was really created by physicians for physicians to begin with. Um, and so we often think very much uh, provider-centric in terms of what's their workflow like, what's their daily life like, what, what is it that is, uh, is getting in the way of them delivering on value-based care. Got it. Thanks for, thanks for letting us kind of peer behind the curtain there. Um, something you might hear, it's, it's popular in, in kind of the healthcare media these days, is the argument of kind of can can non-providers jump into a provider-based technology? Or can non-providers really jump in and start to add value in an environment that's, that's a little bit foreign to them? I think the answer is yes. Um, I think Stellar Health is probably a great example of that. 
Can you give us a sense of where you all fell on that spectrum? So, of course, you you yourself had extensive healthcare experience, but on the investing side, um, you picked up a great engineer and also your co-founder, but no provider specifically. Could you just give us insight into like what those conversations were like in the beginning or how you thought about bringing on docs versus how to build the platform and, and different things like that? And then we'll transition into, into the platform properly and talking about Stellar. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's something we actually gave a lot of thought uh, to prior to even our founding, um, to your point. Uh, you know, from my perspective, certainly have owned provider practices, health, you know, health hospitals, systems. So I've actually been able to see quite a bit from the front line, but you're absolutely right. In this environment, there are a myriad of technology, healthcare technology companies who I think don't necessarily really understand uh, healthcare at the, at the kind of deepest levels. And that's where it kind of doesn't really quite meet the requirements of driving that adoption, right? And that's, that's the biggest challenge I think a lot of these um, technology companies face. Uh, in our founding team, actually, when we came together, you had myself and then you had Ben, who led a company that worked with 250 practices and over a thousand doctors already, right? So a lot of experience there. Uh, we brought over his old VP of Ops, who also, he was the guy on the ground in pr provider practice offices and knows more about their workflow and what is in their heads almost at every moment of the day than anyone else I've ever met. And so that was really important to us is that we were a healthcare first company, and then we happen to use world-class technology to change that. Um, our CTO actually admittedly has, has no healthcare background. Um, he was actually an ex-Google engineer uh, who claimed to fame as he built the original Google Finance platform in 2006. Um, and then he ended up doing tech stars and getting picked up by the Tisch brothers uh, to uh, be the founding CTO of an e-commerce startup called Spring, uh, which is a e kind of online shopping uh, business. And what we liked about his background in particular, too, is that he built over 2,000 APIs, right? And so the ability to kind of connect uh, in healthcare is incredibly important. Uh, and interestingly enough, he actually tried to be one of those tech people who wanted to do something in healthcare and looked around for six months uh, and eventually realized in order to really be successful doing healthcare technology, you need to partner with people who have that deep healthcare experience. And so that's how um, we came together and he joined us. Um, in addition to that, I will say, absolutely, you still need that clinical perspective. And so we immediately added our chief medical director, Dr. Howard Dubin, who has extensive experience working with Aetna and ProCare um, driving value-based care initiatives. So very important and crucial part of um, any sort of healthcare uh, company. Absolutely. That's great context. So let's, let's use that as an opportunity to transition after hearing about the healthcare experience, the clinical experience, and certainly the business experience and the technology experience that you guys have to educate our listeners a little bit more on, on what the Stellar Health platform is, what it's designed to do, and, and how it works. Can you educate us a little bit on that? Yeah, uh, so I think, you know, the first part is I, you know, to just double click a little bit on what the real problem we see is. Um, in the implementation of value-based care, we find that a lot of payers have decided that they're going to structure these shared savings programs, right, or gain share, surplus, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, the ACO in itself is a uh, example of that construct. And then all these payers said to themselves, we set it up so that their incentives are fully aligned with us. I don't understand 
why all these doctors and providers out there are not doing it, right? And why are they not carrying this out? And if you actually take a step back for a second, that's like asking someone whose job is to do one thing to do something else completely and to change that overnight. Um, and I think that's where the real challenge has lied. In fact, if you ask a provider from their perspective, it's like, so let me get this straight. You want me to do all these extra value-based activities or chores and hope that all the other doctors in my risk pod are also doing those activities in the hopes that 15 to 18 months from now when we reconcile, there'll be some sort of shared savings and I'll get some check, check back. By the way, 80% of those doctors have never even seen one of those shared savings checks. So it's kind of this mythical unicorn that no one's ever even seen. Um, and I think that's what makes it really difficult for the carrying out of value-based care. So that's kind of what we saw as the actual implementation problem so far. Um, and if you think about that, what that means is from a provider standpoint, it is delayed gratification and shared responsibility, right? And that's what we aim to change. Uh, in addition to that, the other big problem we see in the way that it's carried out today is it, the payers will provide these laundry lists of gaps in care or activities or actions that they should do, and particularly at the end of the year, right? So there's this idea in our industry called PETA season, where in September, October, November, you have all these providers chasing all these things down. Um, and from a provider standpoint, that just doesn't make any sense. You know, they're like, a patient comes in, I can treat them then and there, and then they're on their way. I can get them back in actually every so, so many months, but the idea of me actually trying to do a bunch of extra stuff at the end of the year just doesn't actually fit into my workflow. And I can also only treat that patient when they're in front of me. Once they're gone, I can't do anything really about it. So it's important for any solution to fit within that workflow. Um, and so what Stellar Health does is we take in claims data, billing data, 837s, EMR data, ADT feed, all these different data sources. We crunch that in the background and then provide a simple cheat sheet to the provider before they see a patient and it's patient-centric, so additional value-based activities that that provider can do for you today in addition to addressing your hay fever. So we intelligently prompt them to do that and address those things, but then also not only address their hay fever, but address maybe you know, your complex diabetic or your congestive heart failure or you're overdue for a colonoscopy or you should get your A1C done for diabetes. Whatever it may be, we prompt them to do it. And then what's maybe more interesting than that is we pair that with an incentive payment we call a stellar value unit or SVU. And for your audience out there who understands how providers get paid, they typically get paid on RVUs, or relative value units. That's how the entire fee schedule works. And so they typically understand, actually, I'm trying to drive more RVUs means more revenue for me. So they tend to understand that. So we said, why change that framework? Why not just say, for doing these extra value-based actions, we'll actually pay you SVUs. And we keep it simple, one SV equals $1. And what that means is, throughout a month, you do these extra activities, and you can get paid and rewarded for it immediately. And that's what's changed the paradigm and kind of breaks that log jam between the two sides and actually gets all the providers to start carrying out these actions. Got it. Got it. And I think this gives our listeners a great sense of what your platform does. Um, you are the bridge between 
what our country thinks we're doing and then actually executing that vision because truly it rests on the provider's shoulders. Uh, we can design all the risk-based incentive models we want, but if no one's carrying it out, it doesn't matter. And I think you all saw that problem and decided to create an easy to use platform that actually aided in that implementation. So I, I think I get it now. And I think our listeners get it. This is awesome to hear. A couple of quick questions, just staying on the platform for a second. Who is the chief user? Because um, I understand that a provider interacts with the patient, but others do too, care team, et cetera. So maybe address that. And then also, how have you seen, there's a behavioral economics angle here, maybe, which is showing them an incentive that they haven't yet achieved and then unlocking potential value. So how have you seen that adoption kind of dangling a carrot, if you will? Can you give us a sense of that adoption across the providers? So Rohan, those are both great, 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 great questions. And uh, in terms of the support staff, that's actually a very critical part of the delivery care. We always hear these concepts of physician extenders or top of license, right? You want to get everyone practicing at the top of their license. But what does that really mean? And so for us, one innovation we've driven through is that in order to really minimize the amount of time that a doctor has to spend doing all these administrative things, we actually leverage the support staff. So whether it's the medical assistant, front desk staff, or nurses in the office, we actually get them to, you know, print it up, get it in front of the doctor, enter it back in so that they're not taking the time sitting in front of a laptop and not engaging with the patient. And so we really leverage them. And the key there is that we also reward the support staff too. And quite often, you actually get even greater incentive out of them because if you can actually reward them even just a little bit of extra money, it goes a long way for the support staff to see that they're valued in all this, while the physician is still doing certainly the high margin work. But that's actually been one of the biggest secrets is that we really map out the workflow for any patient and physician. And we map to that to make sure that all the support staff are also incentivized to do all the things to get it so that the physician actually only needs to take the one or two minutes to do the highest margin uh, level of work. And then on the second question uh, regarding the behavioral economics, I think you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of what we think about. Um, in fact, everything we do, we track the activity getting done, the conversion rates of did they do it, did they not do it, did they do it, and then it ended up on the claim so that it ends up getting credit for the payer and from CMS. So all those things, it's all behavior that we're tracking. And did the SVU amount drive that uh, specific change? In fact, we think about our product in two, two dimensions, really, and it's quite simple. One dimension is, how do we make it as easy as possible for them to do it? So we're trying to lower that down so that the barrier to want to do it is, is as low as possible. And on the other side, the reward is as high as possible, and that's the SVU. It's providing feedback on the care that they were able to give, um, all these different levers around the reward. So it's those balancing those two things to actually drive the action. And to your point, one of the interesting things that we always tell our payer customers that we work with is you've already spent a lot of time, money, and energy on the analytics and understanding what needs to be done. We're not trying to reinvent that wheel we actually come in and focus on how it gets done. How do you get doctors to do those things? Or the other analogy we often use too is, if you as a payer or you as a central system know that you're the brain, the arm, and the wrist, up to the wrist of the, of, of the system, 
we're the fingers and the hands of the last mile to make sure that the people on the front lines are carrying out what you need to get done. Got it. That's, that's great insight. So you touched on the payer side a little bit. One thing that I'm really curious about, wanted to get your thoughts on, Mike, is you know, what are some of the biggest challenges you guys face in either getting adoption from physician groups or just approaching them in the first place, who I imagine are you know, up to their necks with the, uh, the EHR systems already and might be weary to layer another tech platform on top of what they've already got going on? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I'll start with, you know, remember from the provider side, our, our, our offering is fairly simple. You don't need to pay for this technology or tool. And in fact, it's the reverse. You get paid uh, for doing things and it's pure optional. So if you do these extra things, you get extra money. If you don't bother doing them, there's no penalties. There's no real loss for you. It's just lost opportunity of making extra money. So one would think that the pitch is pretty obvious and you would, you would, you would get providers wanting to engage. But to your point, these providers have been just hit up by EMRs, meaningful use one and two, and all these changes that they had to go through. And frankly, they're just quite jaded. They don't trust the payers. They don't trust any other tech vendors. So for the most part, we are met with quite a bit of skepticism. And the way we tend to break through that is to really start slow. So instead of throwing the kitchen sink and saying, hey, do all these things, we start with, hey, why don't you address these two little things each time? And then we actually get that check back to them for having done so, and that starts building upon itself. So it's really important to start small, show some early quick wins, and that ends up building quite a momentum into, okay, well, if I got paid you know, $300 for just doing these few things, maybe I should actually do a few more of these things, and all of a sudden I'm taking home $2,000, right? So it's, it's pretty interesting how we slowly get them to adopt onto the system. Um, and it's a, it, is, it is a challenge because they're quite jaded, but uh, it's something that we, have, uh, we, we, we tackle um, quite readily. Thanks for that. Now we've heard a lot about the platform, first of all, the problems that you guys are solving, and then how you've built a solution to really attack it. I wanted to ask you kind of what's next now for the company as you kind of pick up growth and, and how many patients are you covering and, and what the goals are for where things go moving forward? Sure. We're at a couple thousand lives today that we're working with, but we're uh, ramping that pretty actively. We have a couple big contracts, uh, both large national payers as well as regional and we're actually adding uh, more providers with those lives uh, kind of every day. And so there's kind of two fronts on this. One is to continue building out this idea of more and more lives and more and more providers into the fold. And the second is also making sure that we add more and more payers who are part of that system and providing these granular incentives. So in general, that's, that's, that's the direction we're headed in. Um, what's also neat about that concept, too, by the way, is that when we have multiple payers running through our platform, um, and we're payer agnostic, uh, it ends up allowing a single place for the provider to turn to for all their VVC needs. So instead of saying, oh, well, this is a Aetna patient, this is a Humana patient, I need to do this, this, and this, our system thinks for them, and, and they don't have to think about now what, what type of payer it is, what line of business it is whether it's Medicaid, commercial, or Medicare, the system just automatically figures that out. And they're thinking, they're just saying, this is what I need to do. So it actually simplifies and takes out a lot of the uh, mental drain on, on the providers, the more payers we add. 
And so that's, that's what we're really focused on right now is in concentrated geographies, we're adding both providers and therefore lives as well as payers. Um, and as you guys know, uh, healthcare is quite local. So you do have to think about everything in the context of state borders and geography or MSA borders as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just, and just honing in on for a minute on the Medicare and Medicaid side, you know, a couple of weeks ago, as I'm sure you saw, a lot of people were talking about the new direct primary care models that CMS will be launching in 2020. Um, we've gotten a good amount of information, not a ton of detail, but we we're just curious to hear how you guys at Stellar are looking at that, on a tailwinds coming out of that. Um, do you have an opinion as a business on what that means for you guys? Yeah, I think that's extremely exciting. Um, admittedly, we weren't too surprised by it because we knew this was the direction they were headed in. If you actually look at the Medicare Advantage side of the business where they have done full cap or some sort of capitation or subcap to primary care, it's been very, very successful. Um, it's actually where a lot of Medicare Advantage players make their margin. Um, and so CMS says, well, why don't I offer that up to my direct Medicare business as well? Um, so we're really excited. I think it actually just shows the importance of primary care, which we are fully 100% behind, and then also that CMS is starting to try and open that up uh, to the to the to these different provider groups. Um, the way I actually see it is, it's almost like they're applying ACOs. They're giving the opportunity to, of ACOs to primary care groups, which is exactly the direction they need to go in. What this means for Stellar is not only is it an industry tailwind for us. But it also means that another 15, 20% of the panel, right, of the patient panel, no matter who you are as a provider, you, as a primary care, you still probably take on some Medicare fee-for-service that falls into this category. This allows us to actually service that. And by the way, they can now earn direct rewards uh, for having uh, done so. So this is an extreme positive for us. I think it's also maybe, you know, just putting on a little bit of our own healthcare wonk that um, this is also just the right direction uh, for our country to go in as well. Um, and then this actually, I think, double, dovetails with one other thing, which is CMS passed this kind of, you know, pathways to success idea, which the concept was ACOs can no longer just sit there as upside only ACOs. Um, I think this has actually gotten a little less press generally, but it's actually even just as important because what it does is it forces everyone who's part of an ACO to have to start adopting value-based care work as well as taking on risk model for yourself one way or another. You can't hide from it anymore by being in just in an upside-only ACO. It got rid of that. And so you either have to do that or you're going to take macro and MIPS. So it's forcing everyone to start adopting. You haven't quite seen the pressure from that come yet because these things take a year or two to sunset, but I think in the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to see a lot of providers start realizing, oh, I actually have to do something about taking on risk. How do I go do that? That, again, is something extremely positive uh, for us because we are that enablement tool that allows them to do so uh, effectively. Great. Thanks for sharing that insight. We, we figured you guys would be excited about that development, but I uh, kind of wanted to hear it straight from you. So, so on that note, uh, there's a lot of growth in your future, clearly, and you'll be scaling up here soon. As you know, uh, a big piece of our audience are MBAs. So we just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, still a young company, but once you start scaling up, you know, what roles would you consider hiring MBAs for? And what are the specific skill sets that you guys think you'll need in the next couple of years? 
Yeah, I think uh, there's all sorts is the short answer to that. And it's everything from really, really great ops people who are actually out there delivering the performance management and the change management that happens with these providers as they utilize our technology. There will be people who need to help bridge the gap between technology and how they're applied in the real world, right? In terms of how providers actually utilize that. There will also be uh, people needed around FPNA and how do we think about what does success mean? Should we be driving for more users and more lives or should we be balancing that with um, you know, making more money on that in general? So all those things are skill sets that we'll be needing uh, going forward. And um, you know, I am happy to say we are looking to hire in general. And uh, there's several spots uh, that we're looking to fill right now and that this will just only continue as we uh, scale up. And as you guys all know, the magnitude of healthcare is just so large. I think we've just scratched the surface and it's already you know, quite a big contract, but we can easily go 100x that in the short term is kind of uh, a very much a possibility given how large healthcare is. And absolutely. And for those listeners who are either hearing about Stellar Health for the first time or now just realizing it could be a good fit for them, is there someone specifically at the firm that you would encourage people to reach out to if they are interested in getting in front of you guys? Yeah, they are more than welcome to reach out to myself. Uh, it's michael.meng at stellar.health. Uh, the important part is it's .health. And uh, I'm more than happy to field uh, any of those. We're still small and lean enough where um, we have very, very direct at dialogue uh, with each other and uh, the team. So, Perfect. That's great. So as we kind of drive towards the end here, we did want to get your thoughts as a Wharton MBA and part of the alumni community. Do you have any advice for Wharton MBAs as we kind of embark on our careers and either graduate or go on to summer internship? Just uh, some ways to help shape our thinking as we enter the industry. Yeah, I think one big picture thing I'd like to just point out is that I struggled or wrestled with a little bit is um, what to do with your career in the long term. I think up until moving into your MBA, a lot of people worked in jobs where, you know, you were told this is the route you should go down, or this is the most prestigious route, or this is the one where you're going to gain the most experience or skill sets. And so you do those things. I think coming out of business school, it gets a little bit trickier because this is, you know, this is now a little bit more permanent. And I found that I had to make this way, weighing or trade-off between um, continuing down a very already well-defined path of private equity and, you know, all these jobs are fairly lucrative. They serve well. It's, it's, it's a good place to be. But then also balancing that and asking yourself, what did you really want to contribute to or make an impact on in life? Um, and it's it's a tricky it's a tricky question, right? And as as you go further and further down your career, um, you either end up stuck in in kind of where you were, or you make the decision that you do want to uh, make a more direct impact um, on the on the world. And I think uh, I at least challenge everyone to at least pose that introspective question to yourself and make sure that that you are doing what you want to do. Um, and that led me down, I think, a path where I am significantly more happy, um, and not because, you know, private equity wasn't a great job, but rather 
I feel like I'm doing much more what I wanted to do uh, now than ever before. Mike, thanks for those words of wisdom. And I think another message you've baked into that is that the rebirth or the introspection doesn't stop when just when you finish your MBA. It's clear that you took the time out of your life to look within later in your career and then jump into something like Stellar, which is fantastic. So I love hearing that. It definitely echoes some of the sentiments of previous guests. So, so thanks for sharing that. And also, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, Stellar Health is taking off fast. We love seeing uh, digital health startups that are funded by, founded by two Wharton grads from the same year. I mean, that's just a dream story. Um, no doubt you'll be coming to the conference sometime soon and talking about how you have millions of patients on the platform. I'm being serious. I can tell you guys have it um, and really appreciate you making the time and spreading the good word with us. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you uh, both, Rohan and Scott. Appreciate that. Uh,